all the preparation you put into a sermon and then someone asks a question about something you hadn't even thought of. Um, I assume they think he's a young man because it said he ran up to Jesus. So that's my answer to that one. It's interesting talking about preparations for sermons. I don't know how many of you... um, I have to look at the title on the cover because it's usually closed every day with Jesus Bible reading notes, but we've been going through Jonah for what appears to be an eternity um, recently, but it's good, we're working through it. And I I was just looking at it yesterday after, again, having just reflected on what we're going to do today. And and we've got to the point where, where Jonah has just arrived at Nineveh. And the writer of the notes said, Jonah had a massive task ahead of him, but he had to, it had to be done. However, God's enabling is always equal to the task. If I didn't read Friday's notes, I'd be better off, wouldn't I? Saturday's notes. Nowadays, we would describe the circumstances that Jonah finds himself in and what happened when he spoke to the people as revival or an evangelical awakening. Indeed, what we saw in Nineveh is one of the greatest evangelical awakenings recorded in the Old Testament. One of the shortest sermons ever preached, just eight words, brought the biggest response. So I went back to my notes to see what I could do with the other 1,950 words. (laughs) And I wasn't able to change it much. I just hope you don't go home today and when you're sitting around the lunchtime table, you're saying, I wish you'd have stuck to just those few words. Well, I'm focusing on imitation this morning, as you may have realised. And I want us just particularly to look at the Ephesians reading, um, but also pick up a few things from the Mark reading. Many employers in business and industry know the vital importance of incentives. How can workers be persuaded to work harder, better, and so increase productivity and increase sales? All kinds of inducements are offered in the form of, well, perhaps higher wages than a competitor, more attractive conditions, bonuses, good holidays, health insurance, recreational and educational facilities, and good pension prospects. And whilst these are helpful, and very useful, many are still not satisfied. And sadly, these days, the whole system seems perhaps to have got a little bit out of kilter, doesn't it? Actually, the best incentives are neither material nor selfish wanting. Wise employers seek to give employees a heightened interest in their job a greater loyalty to the firm, a feeling of pride in what they're doing, making or selling. And all this bears witness to the nature of men and women made in God's likeness. Who in addition to needing a job, needing a reason for doing it and a sense of fulfilment. Not surprisingly, therefore, the Bible is itself concerned not only with obligation, but motivation. We know what we ought to do. 
We need to be motivated to do it. During chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul moves on his treatment of Christians from behaviour, from models of working, to motivation. He shows us how we should live and how we should show love for Christ in our daily lives. Ephesians is a letter that doesn't actually refer to any particular church, any particular people, or any particular problems. In fact, the word at Ephesus, which is in the first verse of the book of Ephesians, it's not actually there in some of the early manuscripts. So Paul may have intended it to be a circular letter, to be read by all the churches. Perhaps a summing up letter of what he said in other places. It was sent with Titicus to strengthen and encourage the church in the area and contains staggering thoughts. Paul wants his readers to grasp how wide, long and deep is the love of Christ. And as the letter progresses, Paul cranks up the volume to express that love. There's not actually one mournful note in Ephesians. Paul's been arguing that because we're God's new society, we must adopt new standards. And because we have decisively put off the old life and put on the new, we must wear appropriate clothing. What do people see in us? Do they see that we put on the appropriate clothing as we want to proclaim the gospel to those round about us? In these 20 verses that we read this morning, they split into four blocks. The first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Christians are to imitate God's example. And as we've talked about a bit earlier, really, we live in a world where people try to imitate, try to copy, try to be like somebody else. We see imitation clothes, as we mentioned, goods, music, CDs. And in these days, it's become a bit of a problem, actually. Perhaps the word has taken a bit of a different meaning these days from what it had when Paul used the word. And as we saw also this morning, there's nothing flattering in a poor imitation. But there's nothing wrong in trying to imitate for the right reasons. And Paul's saying, imitate God. And in the letter to the Philippians, he uses a similar line when he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, how do you get a good imitation? Well, you study the original carefully. You live closely with a person. You watch every detail. Some of you know that I take a bit of an interest in model railways. And for me, the key thing about modelling on the railways is, is to go and just look at the, the real thing and then trying to get the model 
looking like it, particularly the scenery, you know, when you get a, a post standing on the ground, it's never all nice and clean round the bottom. There's always weeds, bits of grass, bits of rubbish. And those little bits make it real in the model, and you need to look carefully if you then want to imitate it. God has called us, you and me, to share the kind of love in our lives that is so intense that Paul compares it to the love that took Jesus to the cross. A love that goes beyond affection to self-sacrificing service. You read there in verse 2, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Of course, in life there are special times when we show our love to someone, aren't there? There's birthdays, anniversaries, Valentine's Day and, and other specific occasions. And some of us are, are better at doing that than others. But you see, Christians, we are called to show that life-enriching love all of the time because God in Jesus did exactly that. Impossible? Well, yes, except for one thing. In verse 1, we're told we're, dearly, we're God's dearly loved children. As God's children, we have a new life. His own life planted deep in each one of us. And because of this, it is possible for us actually to be like God. A better translation of the first uh, verb there, be, is actually become. Because we'll never get there. We'll never be exactly like God. We will always fall. It's actually become. Become imitators of God. Grow. It is an ongoing thing. God has given us all that we need and the choice is ours to imitate. In the reading from Mark's Gospel, the rich young man who wanted to get eternal life struggled when he had a choice. He wanted assurance of eternal life and Jesus pointed out that the salvation doesn't come from good deeds unaccompanied by the love for, God, love for God. The man needs a whole new starting point. Instead of adding another commandment to keep or a good deed to perform, the young man needed to submit humbly to the Lordship of Christ. You need to note in response to the question about how to have eternal life, Jesus told him to keep the commandments and listed six of them. He listed the six that are referring to relationships with others. It's interesting that in, in Mark's uh, reference to this, we read that Mark spoke lovingly. He loved him. doesn't say that in the other two accounts, in the other Gospels. I don't think Jesus was actually thumping things and saying, this is what you should do. He was lovingly trying to encourage him. Jesus told him that he must do something more than just take on another commandment. He should sell everything, give money to the poor. And Jesus' statement exposed the man's weakness. In reality, his wealth was his God, his idol, and he wouldn't give it up. 
Thus it violated the first and greatest commandment, to have no other gods before me, which then affected the way he was able to keep the rest. If we're imitators of God, we need to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our minds. Secondly, Paul goes on to say we must live holy lives. God is characterised by holiness as well as by love. Today's society, obscenity, coarse joking, not telling the truth are so common. They're almost so common that we don't notice it. And if we're not careful, we become part of it. Paul says there should be nothing of that in our Christian life. Paul's not forbidding contact with unbelievers. Jesus told us to follow and befriend sinners, to help them, to get alongside them. What Paul is speaking against is condoning the lifestyle. We must imitate God, not the world. Otherwise, the church will gradually be polluted. We should live in light, not darkness, Paul says in verse 8. It's actually unusual for Paul to use these symbols. They're more akin to John. But Paul has a special reason for using them here. You enter places you know well. If it's dark, it's still easy to go wrong. And what Paul's telling us here is, if we walk in the darkness of the world, it's easy to become lost in what the world is doing. If we choose the life of love and holiness that keeps God's light, it will keep us in God's light. It will help us as we grow, as light also encourages growth. Well, thirdly, we read in verses 15 to 18, we should live lives responsive to the Holy Spirit. Paul's already told his, his readers that they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, they mustn't grieve the Holy Spirit, and he now tells them that they must be filled with the Holy Spirit. A drop's no good, you've got to be full. He begins by drawing certain comparisons between drunkenness and the Holy Spirit's fullness. And indeed, there is a superficial similarity between the two conditions. A person who is drunk, we say, is under the influence. Under the influence of alcohol. And certainly a spirit-filled Christian is under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. But that's where the comparison ends. Paul paints a contrast. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was both a physician and a pastor, wrote, Wine, dash, alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, it's a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will always find it is classified among depressants. It's not a stimulant. Further, it depresses first and foremost the highest centres of all the brain. Everything they control, they control self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes man and woman, but Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones just said man, behave at his very best and highest. What the Holy Spirit does, however, is the exact opposite. 
If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit in a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every facility, the mind, the intellect, the heart, and the will. If the ex- excess of alcohol dehumanises, the fullness of the Spirit brings us to be more human, more like Christ. The final quality named as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is self-control. And that's the big difference between the intake of alcohol and the intake of the Holy Spirit. Where are you this morning as the Holy Spirit seeks to work in your life? Are you filled up? Are you brimmed up to overflowing? So where does this all take us? Well, fourthly, we need to be responsive to each other in verse 19. This verse is actually one of the very few in the New Testament that pictures Christians getting along together. It's actually a very similar verse in Colossians 3 verse 16, but they're really the only two. Verse 19 there, we speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Well, they are, that's how we're supposed to speak to each other. Now, you may not be the greatest of singers for hymns, psalms and songs, but what he's really saying there is we need to be people who love and want to be together. Actually, the way they learnt things in the biblical times was uh, people would talk the songs, they were... They, they, They sung them and they could remember them. So in this instance, that's the situation he's actually talking about there. But it is a picture of joy and closeness. So who do you want to imitate today? Perhaps more importantly, why do you want to imitate them? Do people see you as a perfect imitation of Christ? Do they see me like that? Sadly, not all the time by any means. What will people see when we go out into the high street in a few moments' time? Will they see a perfect imitation or a wobbly old chair? It's a story about three boys wanting to copy, imitate their fathers. And they were bragging about who, how good their fathers were. The first boy says, I want to be like my dad. He scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, he calls it a poem, and they give him 50 quid. Second boy says, that's nothing. I'm going to be like my dad. He scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, adds a bit of music to them, calls it a song, and they gave him £100 third boy said that's no good at all I want to be just like my dad he's beaten yours all hands down he scribbles a few words on a piece of paper he calls it a sermon and it takes eight people to collect all the money in bowls from the church and bring it up to the front of up to him in church as I said who do you want to imitate Where is it all 
grounded and established, according to Paul. In the love, and the love we only get through imitating God the Father, as seen through his Son, prompted by the Holy Spirit. I pray that the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, will have prompted each one of us this morning to consider what others see in us.